This past month, I discovered that on Netflix, they have the old episodes of Mission Impossible. Remember that, if you're old enough? You probably remember the familiar theme song. It starts with that shrill, ringing noise. Boom, 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 boom. And then da, 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 you know. So I was going to play that this morning, but I thought it might have been a bit much and maybe not totally appropriate. <laughs> but you probably know how each episode begins. Jim, the head of the Impossible Mission team, played by Peter Graves, goes into a phone booth or into a record shop or into a photo booth or something like that. He takes out a key and he opens a secret compartment and he finds a tape recorder, a record player in there, an envelope with pictures. Jim plays the recording and the message begins like this. Your mission, Jim, should you choose to accept it. And then the mission is briefly described as Jim looks at the pictures and the recording always ends this way. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. And watching the tape go up in some sort of acid steam was always my favorite part. In fact, watched an episode last night where he had a little tiny tape recorder, only about that big with two little spindles there, and he, he just threw it into a trash bin. I thought, well, that's kind of really stupid. That, that's the way, because it said dispose of it in the usual method. And then all of a sudden, all this acid steam comes out of the, the trash bin. Always my favorite part. The overall theme of Romans chapter 9 through 11 seems like a mission impossible. God's old covenant people, except for the faithful remnant, rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they persecuted and killed the prophets. The Lord Jesus lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23 verse 37 and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together in the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. When Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was about to be stoned to death in the book of Acts, he said to his persecutors, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the laws ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Now, there are a lot of reasons that the Old Testament, or in the Old Testament, Israel rejected and killed the prophets. The Bible says they were stiff-necked. Israel resisted the Holy Spirit. They loved their sin. They followed after other gods. But one of the reasons that the Jews rejected the gospel ministry of Paul and rejected the ministry of Jesus Christ was because they had a very difficult time accepting a message that was also given to Gentiles. It seemed impossible, mission impossible, that a salvation which included Gentiles equally with them could ever be of God. They were convinced they were the chosen people, the only chosen people. They were convinced that God had something special for them, and the fact that Gentiles entered into that convinced them that it couldn't be their message. 
It couldn't be the revelation God had given them. So Paul says they were ignorant of the proportions of their salvation. They were ignorant of the extent of saving faith. They were ignorant of how far the gospel was intended to reach. Now, the outline in your bulletin this morning is simply built around three Old Testament scriptures that Paul quotes in this section. First of all, verse 11, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. Then verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And lastly, in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. So look at uh, chapter 10, verse 11, the 11th verse of the 10th chapter of Romans. Paul uses the word whoever, or in some of the translation, whosoever. Whoever, not just Jews, not just Gentiles. The gospel is open to whoever believes in the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon his name. Quoting Isaiah, Paul repeats what he just said in verse 33 of chapter 9, right above this. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 33, he said, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed disappointed. The King James Version reads, shall not be put to shame. The word translated put to shame means to be disappointed, to be disillusioned. It's a word that can mean also to be defeated. It comes from a root word that's the same as the root in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Remember that? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's, it's not the idea of being ashamed of something that it's shameful. It's the idea of, of disappointment. Paul says, I'm never disappointed in the gospel. I'm never disillusioned by the gospel. I'm never defeated by the gospel. In other words, the gospel always accomplishes the work that God intends it to accomplish. It's never mission impossible. It's always mission it's done, achieved. Whoever believes on him will not be disappointed. Now, the text of Isaiah that Paul is quoting, the Hebrew actually says, he that believes, he that believes. And that is general, and it's as general as you can get. And Paul adds the word whoever to show the general intent of Isaiah's text here. Whoever is a stronger term. It's a gospel for whoever, whoever. As God offered salvation in the Old Testament to whoever, he offers salvation in the New Testament to whoever. You know, every time I read that, I think of, you know, today people like, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, they make it a very, very broad, negative thing. Uh, it's just the opposite of what it is. Whoever, you know, it, it, all, anybody, whoever is out there and responds to the gospel message. In the same way that whoever believed in God in the Old Testament was not disappointed, then whoever believes in Christ in the New Testament is not disappointed. The true nature of God's redemptive plan all along, Old Testament and New Testament, 
was to extend it to everybody. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all are what? One in Christ Jesus. And the only barrier to salvation is not racial, it's not cultural, it's not economic. The only barrier to salvation is personal rejection. The only barrier to salvation is if a person rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a Jewish gospel. God is not a Jewish God. Now, the Jewish people had a very hard time with this. And we find the classic illustration of this back in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. And if you're like me and you haven't been to the book of Jonah for a while, where is Jonah? It's a difficult book to find. You might find Daniel and then Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then, then Jonah. So it's tucked back in there in that, that place. And, and Jonah is the classic illustration of mission impossible when it came to the Gentiles. Verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Now, Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, there was the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. So Jonah was a prophet in the northern king of Judah or Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And Jonah's name, by the way, means dove. That's what Jonah means. He's, a, he's to be a messenger of peace. Jonah was sent on a mission of peace. Now, Israel was prosperous during the time of Jeroboam II, and they had extended their borders all the way to Damascus, Syria. So they occupied a tremendous amount of the original territory that had been given and promised to Abraham. And there was a time of peace at this time, except for the fact that the Syrians and the Assyrians kept raiding them, raiding the borders, coming in and raiding the villages. Therefore, the Israelites really grew to hate the Syrians and the Assyrians to the east. Now, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. They were not Jews. They were Gentile people. They were pagan people. Nineveh was a monstrous city. You'll notice it says in chapter 1 and verse 1 that it was a great city. That means not great in the fact of spectacular, even though it was, but in, in, in largeness. The population is estimated at this time about 600,000 people. For an ancient city, that's a large city. Uh, historians say there was a three-day walk across the city. To walk clear across the city took three days. It wasn't exactly Emmett, Idaho, was it? <laughs> 600,000 people. It was a very large city for the ancient world. And Nahum the prophet called it a bloody city. Nahum said it was a city full of fraud, full of lies, full of robbery, full of sensuality, full of violence, full of witchcraft, full of idolatry. And the Assyrian soldiers were known for their cruelty and their brutality. In fact, the Assyrians are the ones that invented crucifixion. Crucifixion, the most horrible, painful, agonizing way to die. And so the Jewish people really hated the Assyrians. And God says to Jonah, go to them. Arise, go to them. And Jonah knew what this mission was. He was a prophet. Go preach to these people. 
And that just really went against his grain. Why should marauding, evil, pagan, Gentile Ninevites get in on the blessing of God? Now, God had a reason for sending Jonah, and John MacArthur sums it up this way. He said, I think I can give you the reason in a very simple statement. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach a message of salvation to the Gentiles to shame Israel. That's right, to shame them. Because they were so resistant to doing that, and they probably said, oh, they wouldn't believe, they're so steeped in paganism, they're so steeped in idolatry, they're so steeped in witchcraft, they're so far down the proverbial tubes in terms of their evil and sin, we wouldn't bother to go to these pagan Gentiles, those godless things, and so they just isolated themselves and they never went. And so God gave them one classic object lesson. One prophet went one time, preached one time, and the whole place repented. Now that's a lesson, folks. It shamed them by the fact that a heathen city would repent at the first preaching of a strange Jew that came into that town. Israel's reluctance to reach the Gentiles was thus rebuked by the tremendous ministry and result of Jonah's work. One of the reasons we'll see in uh, chapter uh, 11 of Romans is that God brought the Gentiles to faith in order to make Israel, jealous of that. God has to go to extremes. Well, you know the story. Jonah didn't want to go. No way, I'm not going there. He considered it to be an impossible mission, or at least a a mission that he refused to accept. And so verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1, he rose up to flee. Verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. That was a city on the western coast of the Mediterranean. He rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare. Excuse me, I I turned around. Joppa was the one right on the seashore. Tarshish was thought to be at the other end of the Mediterranean. So he was going to go clear across the Mediterranean. Uh, Some people say that Tarshish was actually uh, another name for what we call Britain today. So he was going to go as far away as he could, far from the presence of the Lord. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He got on a ship, and you remember he got thrown out of the ship. He was swallowed by a, a large fish, a great fish. He was vomited up, so even the fish couldn't tolerate this disobedient prophet. And finally, he got the message and went. And he preached, and in chapter 3, you can read that for yourself, the whole place repented. The whole place. God saw their works, they had turned from their evil way, and God relented from the calamity he said that he would do to them. They had a revival in a pagan city. And what was Jonah's response to this? That everybody in this pagan city had responded to the the message and repented of their sin? Chapter 4, verse 1 of Jonah. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He became angry. He was furious. He was angry. And his anger was all about the fact that he couldn't stand the thought that Gentiles entered into covenant with him. What right did they have? And he prays and says in verse 3 of chapter 4, 
Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. There's one thing I can't take, it's Gentile believers. Kill me. (laughs) God was gracious, God didn't kill him, taught him another object lesson. Gets a little bit of shade, the plant dies, you know, you've probably heard that story, but... uh, But that just gives you a little idea how tough it was to break those Jews loose to reach Gentiles. They didn't want to do it. So now we can go back to Romans chapter 10 and and see how difficult it was for the Jews to accept that Gentiles would be saved. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 10. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Abounding in riches for all who call upon the name of the Lord, Jew or Gentile. Now in Paul's day, if a Jew traveled outside the borders of Israel, went to a Gentile country, when he came back in, at the border he shook the dust off his feet. Remember that expression, shake the dust off your feet? Jesus used that, shake the dust off your your robes. They didn't want Gentile dust taken into Israel. Even the dust was considered profane. They wouldn't go into a Gentile house because they thought Gentile houses were defiled. They wouldn't eat with a Gentile utensil or a Gentile plate or drink from a Gentile cup because they thought they were defiled. They didn't even want to touch Gentiles. In fact, the typical Jewish prayer of that day when they rose in the morning was, I thank God that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Boy, how would that play in today's world of political correctness? You know, I thank God I'm not a woman. Of course, men were praying this. I thank God I'm not a slave, and I thank God I'm not a Gentile. Remember the prayer of the the Pharisee where he looks over at the publican, the tax collector who's praying, I thank God I'm not like him, like that tax collector over there. I tithe everything I get. And he goes into all of these great things. And they were reluctant to share anything with the Gentiles, even their faith in God. So when the message of salvation came in the New Testament through the apostles and started extending itself to the Gentiles, it became something the Jews did not want to receive. So this brings up the second Old Testament quote in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10. Whoever will call, verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 11, salvation is for whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for whoever calls on his name. So there's just one condition for being saved. You know, sometimes we get so theological and we start talking about election and choosing and calling and those kind of things and we wonder, okay, what are the conditions to be saved? I mean, are you really one of the elect? Are you really one of the called and those kind of things? No, whoever calls on his name will be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you are. It's just a matter of calling on the Lord Jesus. Now, this isn't a general call for help in the idea that, well, of God, if you are there and if you are listening kind of thing. The idea of calling on God in this text is the idea of expressing faith towards God. It's the idea of being a believer. It's the call for salvation. In the Bible, we see God calling men and women. 
He called Jonah, Jeremiah, Isaiah to be prophets. We see Jesus calling the the twelve apostles. We see God calling Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We learn a lot in the Bible about God's calling. As believers, we're called, what? According to his purposes. We are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. The New Testament refers to us as believers as the called. The Greek word translated church, ekklesia, literally means the called out ones. We're the ones called of God. Now here in Romans, we see the other side of God's saving work of the Holy Spirit. We see whoever calls on God. God calls men and women, and in response, they call back. It occurs to me, this is one of the frustrating things for me in this age of telecommunications and high-tech cell phones and the ID and the numbers on the cell phones and stuff on, on people's phones when they answer. Have you ever called someone, left a message, and they never called back? And they never intended to call back. I know people who, as a rule, don't answer their phone and don't call back. They just don't do that. They don't want to talk to you unless they want to talk to you. Now, calling on God is the idea of calling on him for salvation, calling God back, as it were, calling on him for forgiveness, calling on him for mercy, calling on him for grace. It's a calling that has all the elements of here of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The element of belief, of true belief, the element of confession of sin, we see the lordship of Jesus Christ. So to all who call, whosoever believes... These are the key phrases in these two verses that that express the depth, the proportion of salvation. Verse 13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of the Lord. Where did Paul get that idea? comes right out of the Old Testament. It's a quote from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And uh, Peter also quoted the same passage when he gave that first gospel sermon at Pentecost. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it isn't anything new. Salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament has always been for whoever calls, for whoever calls upon the Lord. Now, calling on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament is an interesting phrase. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? It primarily refers in in the Old Testament to worship, to worship. It refers to calling out to God in terms of adoring, wonder, and praise to him. It's speaking of his majesty, extolling his virtue, humbling yourself before his sovereign power. And that's the reason that I wanted to sing this morning, majesty, worship his majesty, because we're calling upon the name of of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is an Old Testament expression of true hearted worship. Uh, we find it in Psalm 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. In the 116th Psalm, the fourth verse, then I called upon the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I beseech you, save my life. 
Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our Lord is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. And we also find in the 116th Psalm, one of my favorite offertory scriptures. In fact, we read it again this morning. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord, O may it be, in the presence of all his people. And so you find that idea of calling upon the name of the Lord in many other places in Scripture. Calling on the name of the Lord is the idea of worshiping God, the true God, with a true heart. And in the New Testament, it's to call upon the name of the Lord means to call upon the Lord as revealed in Jesus Christ, whose name is revealed in Jesus Christ. So when you call upon the name of the Lord, it means that you're called upon him because of what he has done, what you've known he has done. You're calling upon him because you know something of who he claims to be. The name of the Lord literally means all that Jesus is, all that he has done. It's the essence of his, his name. And so it's it's not a desperation calling on the name of the Lord where we say, Lord, whoever you are and whatever you are, whatever you want, please, and, and, and so on. No, the name of the Lord is clearly defined. Who he is, what he has done, is explicitly revealed in Scripture. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice at the end of verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, he will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The person who calls on the name of the Lord, whoever they are, doesn't matter who they are, what they have done, is going to be saved. So the emphasis here is on the extent of salvation, the proportion of salvation. It's wide as the world to those who believe. And for all who believe in, on God's terms, there is offered salvation, eternal deliverance from death and hell. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, we see the third Old Testament quote in this section. In verse 14, Paul launches into a series of rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Here we see the absolute necessity of evangelism and missions. In order to be saved, sinners must call on the name of the Lord. But verse 14, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? For calling on his name presupposes that they know and believe his name. Know what? They believe what? The gospel. That he died on the cross for their sins. He was buried. That he was raised again on the third day. Secondly, how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? They will not believe Christ until they have heard him speaking through his messengers. Speaking through them who tell them. Thirdly, how can they hear without someone preaching? The word translated preach here is caruso. It means to, to herald to them. A herald was one that went around proclaiming good news. In ancient times, before the development of mass media and communication, the role of the herald was vital. The major means of transmitting news was the public, 
public proclamation in the city square or in the marketplace. The herald would go to the city square, oftentimes travel to a neighboring city and go to the city square. And he would proclaim whatever the news is. There could be no hearers without heralds because there was nothing to hear. Fourthly, how can they preach unless they are sent? So God has the whole plan laid out here. You see, how are they going to call on the one in whom they haven't believed? They're not. And how are they going to believe in him whom they haven't heard? They're not. And how are they going to hear without a preacher? They're not. And how are they going to preach except they be sent? They're not. In other words, if God doesn't send preachers, if he doesn't send heralds who preach the truth so that men can believe and call on the name of the Lord, they can't be saved. You can't be saved unless you call on the name of the Lord and all he is. And you can't do that unless you believe. And you can't believe unless you've heard. And you can't hear unless somebody tells you. And nobody's going to tell you unless they are sent. That's the flow here. So the point is, God had to send preachers. There's no other way to believe than to hear the truth. And don't miss this part. Clear message precedes saving faith. It must be the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen by intuition or what a person feels about Jesus or feels about God and, and believes something about that. It doesn't come by reading a book about religion or, or seeing a movie that might be inspiring or something about God. A clear message precedes saving faith. And here we see the crown of Paul's argument. The gospel, if it came to anybody, the saving message, if it came to anybody, was sent by God, right? Was sent by God. And so Paul is saying to the Jews here, have you forgotten that God sent preachers beyond Israel? Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that not only Jonah, but other the prophets like Nahum and Obadiah preached the message of repentance and faith to other nations? Have you forgotten that Jesus came to go beyond Israel? That the apostles, including Paul, extended the gospel beyond the Jews? And so Paul reminds them with that tremendous quote from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, 7. And we sang this this morning. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And I don't think anybody thinks that feet are a beautiful part of the body. You'd have to be really weird to that. <laughs> but in course, in those days, the messengers normally traveled on foot and the feet were significant members of the body because the feet, the legs, are what brought people and they might have gotten dirty and smelly in the long, hard, long, hard, long, hot journey. But to those who eagerly awaited the good news, they were beautiful feet. Those who bring good news are always welcome. And here in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, the verse is a joyous verse because this is when the heralds brought the good news to Jerusalem that the captivity of 70 years in Babylon has come to an end. Has come to an end. 
The good news coming in Jerusalem from Babylon is the captivity is over. The captivity is over. The bondage is over. Deliverance has come. And here comes the messenger and he's running with the fact that Israel is going to be free. Deliverance has come. Good news. And everybody is blessed and everybody is excited and happy. These are beautiful feet because they bring a beautiful message of liberation, a beautiful message of freedom. God has redeemed Jerusalem. And the picture here is a historical event, the coming of the messenger announcing the freedom of people from bondage. But here in Isaiah, it's also a symbol of that glorious future day when true redemption and true salvation comes to Israel, but just not Israel. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 52, just down a few verses there. It says, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. To the ends of the earth, Jew, Gentile, all the nations may see the salvation of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, that is our mission as Grace Baptist Church. It's the mission of any church to take the gospel to the ends of the, the earth. Turn over as we conclude to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And it's also the verse we concluded in Sunday school class this morning. In a word, Acts chapter 1 Verse 8, I'll start with verse 6, but Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is our mission, not only possible, but our mission given, which God will do. And verse 6 says, when they'd come together, they were asking him, this is after the resurrection of the Lord, and he's, he's meeting with them on the mount right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And they have that, that typical question, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And that that's what, was an honest question to them because they'd seen the resurrected Lord and they, they knew the promises of the Messiah, the forever kingdom of David, throwing off the yoke of the Gentiles, still thinking of the Gentiles. And so there's, is this it, Lord? And they had no idea yet that Jesus was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so he says... Basically, that's not for you to know when the kingdom is coming. But then he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is what you need to know. This is what you need to do. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is our mission. That is our mission, and it didn't go up in some kind of acid steam right after I read that, right? <laughs> and it's not should you decide to accept it. You will accept it. This is your mission because God is going to use us. He's going to use us in our Jerusalem, our local locality. He's going to use us in our Judea, Jem County, Payette County, the regions beyond. He's going to use us in Samaria, the, the province next door, wherever that is and to the outermost parts of the earth. I was talking to a missionary from Yemen one time, and he reminded me of something. You think, well, Yemen doesn't have missionaries. Well, he was a medical worker, but uh, he was taking the gospel to Yemen. And uh, in Yemen, they believe that that's where the Queen of Sheba lived, that came and visited Solomon. And they have 
historical fact for that. But Yemen was also the ends of the earth in those days. Where's the most out-of-the-way, faraway place you could think of? They thought of, of, of Yemen. Yemen, even to the uttermost parts of the earth, wherever that is. God has called us in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God will fulfill that through, through us. That's just a part, but a big part, because it's through us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we read in your word about uh, those who are reluctant to take the gospel to a people they didn't like, I think that also applies in our day as well. Father, as it's on the news every day of what people think of immigrants, what people think of Muslims, what people think of people that are not like themselves. And we live in a very divisive, hateful world right now, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that, that the gospel goes to whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, whoever will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have called us to be part of what you are doing in our world, to bring men and women and boys and girls to faith, that you would use us as your Holy Spirit brings them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have made us a part of your plan for the ages. And as someone has said, when it came to disciples, making disciples who further make disciples, that you have no other plan. That is the way that you have chosen it, Father. And we are humbled, we are grateful, we are blessed, we are privileged to be a part. In Jesus' name, amen.